Welcome to the Guardian Podcast with Ren Melberg. My name is Harold Nichol. Nothing is perfect. There are no perfect solutions to anything. There are no silver bullets. We've all heard these expressions hundreds of times. My feeling is that the same thing can be said of Agile, Scrum, Scaled Agile, or any of the many Agile-inspired methods of organizing projects. So this week on the Guardian Podcast... I'm going to lean in and find out the objections to Agile from the philosophical to the individual team member. And Ren, there are lots of people in industry from all over the world who believe in the Agile approach and believe Mm -hmm. very fervently. But there's also a healthy number of people who are pretty outspoken with the opposite opinion. And one of the big criticisms is that Agile is just another fad that's more marketing than meaningful. And I know, of course, you don't agree with that. But at the same time, you know, you can't fault anybody for their skepticism. Or can you? Well, no, I I don't think we can. Um, And especially when we look at Agile in the broader community, there's really um, very few... um, practices under that umbrella, mm-hmm. and it's a fairly broad umbrella, so that makes it look less distinct, more, as mm-hmm. you said, more more style than substance. Um, and then there's only really two houses under there that have invested in the scientific evidence and proof consistently. So we look at Lean, mm-hmm. clearly has a lot of case studies, well-documented, um, fact-based to say these work. Mm-hmm. We look at the scale agile framework in SAFE, it's the same thing, right? They have a well-documented proof that this works. Mm-hmm. XP, we have some, right? Not right. quite as much scientific rigor, but there's a substantive basis there. And then we have some, but not, not quite as uh, uh, you know, arduous um, and, and all the other Agile practices under the Agile umbrella. And so that, you know, sort of gives people the sense that, one, it looks like a fab because there's so many different things under that umbrella. Mm-hmm. And there isn't like an Agile governing governing authority, and we've talked about that. There's multiple depending on what you're doing. That's right, yep. Um, and so that makes it look very faddish. Um, and then there isn't a consistency as far as professional practices across them. Right. So like I said, some have really strong certification processes, some have continuing ed requirements, some don't. Some have, you know, strong case studies and, you know, and some have none or very few or some are very old, you know, and, you know, it, it, it sort of lends itself um, to some of that skepticism. And and that's why I, I understand it, mm-hmm. get it. Um, the perception to some degree is legitimate. Mm-hmm. And then I work to sort of steer people towards the things that are defined and proven. Let's focus on that. Okay. Because we know that if you do these things, this is the result you're going to get. That's the result you desire. So let's let's focus on that. 
That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, follow the data where there's proof and let that speak for itself? Yeah, as, well, especially me, because we talked about the fact that in my heart, I'm a business scientist, so I'm mm-hmm. not interested in the fads. Okay. Um, and we'll pay very little attention to them. And so that's why my clients come to me, because, you know, I do all the homework for them in the study. Mm-hmm in the years of study for them to say, okay, this is what's proven to work. So let's ignore the fads and do what we know works. That that makes great sense. But let me go back to my, put my skeptical hat back on because Mm -hmm. I've contended before that the people on the Agile team who were great employees and top performers would be the same regardless of the methodology. And at the same time, the below-average, passive-aggressive, gadfly, break-room lawyer, slacker, generally lazy person was going to be all of those things as well. So is there a way to weed out the latter group, or will Agile somehow make model workers out of slackers? The thing is there's no hiding in Agile. Because if you're doing good, sound, scrum, and agile practices, you have that transparency. Okay. And one of the things that happens is those people who you viewed as your top performers, some of them will continue to be viewed as your top performers. Some of them you will realize are are not. They were actually causing problems. And I'm thinking of... More than one client of mine when I say this, so if mm-hmm. any of you are listening, I'm not, I may or may not be thinking about you. Okay. But um, I call these people fire starters. They're the people who know there's a problem, ignore the problem until it explodes, and then they come in and heroically save the day. Ah. Uh, right? Yes. You're, mm-hmm. They're your own little, you know, office arsonists. Um, and everybody is like, oh, Harold, oh, I can't believe you saved us from ourselves. You're so wonderful, and everybody heaps rewards on them. And, it, and then, of course, they do it again. But mm-hmm. the truth is, that is incredibly expensive, detrimental behavior that in traditional project management doesn't get highlighted in that way. Actually, in traditional project management, they're rewarded for coming in and saving the day. And one of the things that Agile does is it uncovers that kind of dysfunctional behavior in a culture, in a company. Um, You know, wishful thinking is another one. Um, You know, how many companies, you know, say, we're going to get these 20 things done in three months. (laughs) Well, the last three months, how many things did you get done? But this time we're going to get 20. Right? And it never happens. Agile uncovers those kind of dysfunctional behaviors and makes you look at them in a mirror on an individual and an organizational level and say, deal with this. And that's one of the things that's, you know, hard but easy about Agile, right? Is that we don't always want to deal with that stuff. It's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But it actually makes the work environment better for everyone. Okay. That's 
really good news because um, I've experienced the uh, the fire starter, and um, yeah. I feel like I could write a whole book on office arsonists. <laughs> I had so many experiences with them over the years. Yeah, and I'm always dumbfounded <laughs> that doesn't anybody else see through this? But um, and maybe they, they do. I I've worked with way too many executives, and and to say that. Most of them don't. Yeah, that's too bad. Because no one ever, like one of our agile practices is we do a retrospective, right? Mm -hmm. But we don't, we always say we're going to do that in traditional project management, but it never actually happens. Let's be honest, people. It doesn't, right? No, very rarely. (laughs) Project Management Institute has been telling us for, what, 30 some 40 years mm-hmm. that at the end of every project you should do some sort of retrospective mm-hmm. well everybody's focused on the project being done and going on to the next one that it doesn't happen you're so right and so there's no feedback loop to go back to leadership and say hey did you know that Harold actually neglected this problem <laughs> and that's why it blew up mm-hmm. so he wasn't you know the hero firefighter he was actually an arsonist. He started this. Oh, man. That's, uh... Right? That feedback does not exist in a traditional work environment, in a traditional project management, where it's built in hardcore into all agile practices that every two weeks, every or every three weeks, ideally two weeks, we stop and we do a retrospective. Mm-hmm. What did we learn? That's so important. Now, along those same lines, you know, and again, kind of back to personal experience, most people are risk averse. They're, they're followers, not leaders. And I just really don't see that there's a heck of a lot of difference in, you know, the workplace hierarchy of credibility than there was in the lunchroom during the eighth grade. So how can an agile team police the tendency for people to follow the lead of the existing workplace opinion leaders who often push back on the agile way of doing things. Yeah, that's hard. And, um, and you kind of, you and and the critics that you're representing in this conversation have identified a major gap Mm -hmm. in agile, um, which is that, we do, I was going to say very little, but I think that's being generous in teaching and training and coaching and mentoring leaders on how to be agile leaders. Mm-hmm. And the only methodology that pays any attention to this at all, really, substantively, is SAFE. Mm-hmm. They have something called Leading SAFE. It's a two-day course, and they spend one hour of the two days talking about actual leadership behaviors. So let that sink in. And then now you know why. Now you know, because we've talked about this offline, but now the audience knows why I have spent so much time with my clients over the years putting together internal training on how to teach their managers to lead 
in an agile environment Mm -hmm. and how it's very different and how your one-on-ones are different and your performance evaluations are different and how what you do as a manager is different. You don't do these things anymore, but you do these things and all those conversations because if you don't change that, then what happens is these managers, sometimes intentionally, but mostly unintentionally, Mm -hmm. undermine what the Agile team is trying to do. Right. Because they come in and they ask for, and this is one of my red flags that I tell executives about, if you're asking for a status report ever, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) even if you don't use those words, you're probably undermining the Agile practices. If your people are asking for status reports, you're probably undermining the agile practices. If your people leaders are looking at the Kanban board or the Scrum board and saying, well, why why is my guy working on that? You are definitely undermining the agile practices because they're not self-organizing and self-managing, right? Right. That's right. In any of those examples. Um, And that is one of the things that and when I go back and clients have me come in, and I've even gone in after some of the most famous agile practitioners, and I've come in to their clients after them a year and a half, two months later, and I've seen significant degradation. Mm-hmm. And every single time, when I've peeled back the onion and got to the root cause, it's because no one trains these managers, these people managers, how to lead their people differently. Mm. And so they were doing the same old governance, the same old, you know, managing their behavior, managing their time, managing their work, stuff. Um, And then, of course, that means that those individuals regress to traditional work and stop doing work the agile way. Yep, yep. We've uh, all seen where people just revert back to the old way of doing things and in these instances it's not it's not for the betterment of them or the team or the or the business now and I've been on teams also where the members of the team pretty much fired the leader because they just refused to to follow his or her lead and this kind of goes back to what you were saying a moment ago what what can be done with or about a situation like that well, usually it's it's because the team acknowledges and feels empowered to some degree to do what's right, um, and they see some discontinuity between what they know is right for the business, the company, mm-hmm. and what their manager wants them to do. And what's there's in the, you got to kind of figure out what that underlying dysfunction is. Mm-hmm. Who has the information gap? And to be honest with you, it's almost always the manager. Huh, okay. There, there is some lack of understanding of the process. Usually it's a lack of understanding what's going on with product management, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so the manager is trying to um, impose a technical solution without understanding, so the how, with under, without a, a, an understanding of what product management's what and why is. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Agile team does know all, the answer to all those questions, so they, of course, have their own how. Right. And, you know, there's one one situation I mentioned before where 
we were in a system demo, and the chief architect started to very critically, like not in a constructive way, in a deconstructive way, started to pick apart their solution, but he, without really understanding what they were trying to do, because his feedback was actually wrong. It would have hurt the product. Man. And it really undermined. And, and what the what the teams wound up doing is saying, you don't understand what we're trying to do. We're going to keep plowing ahead because product management says this is what we need. This is what they need. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it's sometimes you just got to have um, a sit down and really talk it out mm-hmm. and, and say what's what's going on here. And this is where having a third party agile coaches really is helpful Uh i like to refer to this as agile therapy (laughs) 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 i typically would talk to the team and then talk and talk to the manager separately Uh and then bring them together and you start with aligning everybody on what are your common goals and that usually is what kind of resets everybody gets everybody aligned in the same direction is what are we? What are we trying to? What is this agile team trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. And usually, uh, you see the manager have aha moments. I was on out of alignment with them. I didn't understand that. Right. Yeah, agile therapy. That sounds like um, that sounds like a, a good way to kind of smooth over some of those uh, disconnects, like you were saying. Well, and that's what I try to focus on because it isn't about people being bad. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, how often do we hear that, right? right? What I try to, what I always, almost always um, say to my clients is, well, we just, we're just out of alignment. Let's mm-hmm. get in alignment. It's not that, and you just treat it like it's no big deal because mm-hmm. it really isn't. It just feels uncomfortable. Yeah, that's so well said. Just reposition it from personal to uh a standard business issue. Right. Well, let's get a little bit more granular here um, and help us, and if you could talk specifically about the symptoms of a, of a team that's just going in the wrong direction. So there's specific things that I look for when I'm working with, um, when I'm assessing a team, an agile team, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of what type. Um, I want to look at, are they um, doing sprint plans, mm-hmm. you know, if they're working on a cadence? Um, how are they performing against their sprint plan? Mm-hmm. So if they made commitments, did they actually achieve those commitments? Mm-hmm. Um, if the answer is no, you know you've got some fundamental issues you need to, to work on. Are they doing retrospectives? One of the biggest symptoms of an organization struggling in their agile practices and that they're degrading, mm-hmm. they stop doing retros. Okay. It's one of the first things, and I, I always tell um, leaders at all levels, if your agile teams are not doing retros, that is a flaming red flag. Huh. Okay, <laughs> that yeah. flag's on fire. Mm-hmm. You need to get in there and figure out what's going on mm-hmm. um, because they are avoiding something. That's why that's why human beings stop doing retrospectives because they're avoiding something. There's some sort of conflict 
the dead team doesn't want to face. Yeah, yeah, that's and that's the only reason they will stop doing retrospectives. Um, those those are like the biggest things that we look for. As you know, then there's other things like if they're daily stand up. And this is true for all Agile teams should be doing daily stand-ups, right? Or mm-hmm, right. not necessarily daily, but they should be doing stand-ups. Right, because I think of like program and portfolio level teams, it's often two or three times a week instead of every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but Scrum, Kanban teams, Scrumban teams, <laughs> they all should do it every day. Um, if the stand-up is going more than 15 minutes, there's a communication problem on the team. Okay. And they probably have some practice issues. If the scrum master is doing more talking than anyone else during stand-up, you got a problem. Mm-hmm. That's not a scrum master. That's probably more of a program man- project manager. Excuse mm-hmm. me, because that's more. If you hear work being assigned instead of people volunteering to do the work, you've, you've probably got some problems. You got to look at, into that. Um, some really physical tangible ones is if the code cannot be integrated at the end of the sprint, mm-hmm. you better look at that. Yeah. Because that could be team level practices. They're not doing quality work or something like that. They're they're having testing issues. It could be systemic environmental issues. Right. And the second one is the scary one. <laughs> Yeah. The first one you can turn around in a couple of days. The second mm-hmm. one, usually not so much. Yeah. Um, so you never want to let that unintegrated code go by. No. If it can't be integrated, that's where you that's you do an all stop, wait a minute, how come we can't integrate this code? That's a problem. Yeah, that's that's a that's a deal breaker. So it should be, but I can't tell you how infrequently it is. Oh, man. If you're an executive and you find out that your team or your team of teams can't integrate your co- their code, you should be putting down the phone, putting away your email, and walking down there and finding out why. Why can't you integrate your code? And then commit to them to getting it fixed. Because that's never okay. That's a huge problem. That's right. Because if you can't integrate the code, then why are you doing this work at all? It's just a waste of time and money. Absolutely. Because if you can't integrate, it means you can't use it. And and, and I don't know too many. I've not had a single client that was a make-work client, right? They were just there to make work for people so they could collect paychecks, and we don't care if we deliver value. I've never had one of those clients. No. Every single one of them needed these Agile teams to deliver value. And if they can't integrate their code, they can't deliver value. Well, heck yeah, and even even nonprofits have to deliver something, goodness. Yeah, so, nonprofits aren't make works either, right? No, not at all. They just <laughs> not at all. Don't they make actually any money. usually are under tougher constraints. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> to deliver value. So then Ren, what what can be done to to stop the slide and reverse the kind of backwards momentum you were describing? First, you have to figure out what's really going on. Mm. Um, and you know, if I gave you the 
example of not being able to integrate the code, if it's because of your team practices, then you need to go back to the drawing board, do your team training again, um, and, and get very prescriptive about your agile practices until the team is performing well again. Uh-huh. Remember, you know, when your teams, as far as their agile practices, the newer the team is, the younger the team is, the more prescriptive you want to be. Mm-hmm. And then let them use their retros and their own continuous improvement to to modify and customize their agile practices. But in the beginning, it's really important to be very prescriptive. So always think about, remember when we were learning to write mm-hmm. as little kids, they would have us write our letters over, you know, dashed images of the letters. And it was very prescriptive. Right. Right? Yes. And the better we got at writing, then the more we could customize and the more our own personality could come out in our writing, uh-huh. in our handwriting, right, our printing. I kind of do this weird hybrid of handwriting and printing. I'm one of those people, right? But in the beginning, <laughs> when I learned, when we all learned, it was very prescriptive. Mm, that's right. And then we could work and customize it to what worked for us. Agile practices are the same thing. As you're learning, especially learning as a team, how to mm. work together as a team, you need to be very prescriptive. Yes. Then you customize. As far as systemic issues, I mean, those are those are bigger, bigger problems. Um, so, for instance, if your you know your branches are so bifurcated that you can't bring them together and integrate your code, mm-hmm. that's a pretty significant architectural problem that you need to get your architects to swarm on and fix. You're right. You're right. Right. Um, but as far as you know, agile practices, when when you've got a, a, a significant break, then go back to being the very prescriptive, proven defined agile practices and then iterate off of that. Okay, that's that's good advice. And kind of along the lines of the uh, the code that, that won't integrate when somebody is just presenting PowerPoint slides in place of an actual product to test or lines of code, it's a pretty safe bet that that individual's just kind of mailing it in. They, they're a little bit clueless and generally not contributing. What what should or can happen to remediate a situation like that? Well, there's a couple of things in there, right? One is if an individual is presenting the results, that's a challenge because the results should always be the team's results. Mm-hmm. So the team should be presenting their results. The other one is when I see PowerPoint presentations in a sprint review mm-hmm. or even a user story review for a product owner, that tells me that they couldn't integrate their code. Mm. Because if they could integrate their code, they would show you the real thing. Right. And I work with product management to to help them understand what are the red flags. And the PowerPoint is one of those red flags. Mm-hmm. Now, there's certain um, test scenarios, certain types of tests, I should say, excuse me, certain mm-hmm. types of tests that really are difficult to demonstrate, but you're going to have the test results. So you can show that. That's very different, right? So, for example, when um, the Scrum team does a regression test, 
they're going to show in their automated test application, here are the number of regression tests that we ran, here are the ones that passed, here are the ones that didn't, here's why they didn't. Mm-hmm. That's very different, right? Because it's not That's PowerPoint, right. first of all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it is actual data that you're showing your product owner or your right. product manager. Um, but uh, And then a lot of times when it says, well, here are the ones that didn't, here's why, that's usually when whoever's doing the demo will flip over to the system and show and run that test for the product owner or product manager mm-hmm. so they can see it. So, again, you're still going back to the actual integrated product. Okay. But um, PowerPoint, we use it a lot in retros, uh, sorry, in sprint reviews. Mm-hmm. But it's more. But it's it's more. Here's what our sprint plan was. Here's what we accomplished. How we how we performed against our plan, and then they go right into the actual details. And really, shouldn't you shouldn't be spending a lot of time in in PowerPoint yeah. or Word or you know what Prezi or any of the equivalents thereof. The goal of whoever's running your sprint review. Um, is to get to the substantive demo as soon as possible. Yeah, that's well said. And um, with the time, with the time left, um, there's those occasions when a culture can just be broken. Mm-hmm. And you've talked about those before. And some things are just too damaged to be repaired. When is it time to just say, "I quit"? How do you know when it's time to just walk away? So I work with companies, not so much with individuals. Individuals have to figure out what their own point is. Mm-hmm. That's part of the agile therapy. Um, and I actually usually use a model of the law of diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. So understanding where you're no longer getting an acceptable return on your investment. And if you're an all of us are employees, so I shouldn't say if you're an employee. Someone works for someone. Everybody works for someone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as an employee, your time is a huge investment. That's right. So we should always be analyzing from that perspective as individuals. Am I getting what I want? Am I getting the return on my investment? Yes or no? Right. And we should know when we've hit the law of diminishing returns, when we can invest more and more and more, and we're actually going to get less and less and less in return. Mm-hmm. And the f- few of us actually do that, but those that do actually, you can see, have much more robust careers mm-hmm. because they know when they've hit their limit and okay now it's time for me to go to the next challenge and that limit could be any number of things right mm-hmm. it could be i just don't want to travel anymore right i'm not challenged here uh, you know there's you know i i hate my boss there's lots yeah. of reasons right i you know i don't want to limit the reasons but everybody has what their own limit is when they hit that wall right as an organization the only time you quit is when you go out of business okay I can't emphasize that enough. I'm going to say it again. As an organization, the only time you quit trying to be better, trying to fix things, is when you go out of business. That's it. That's pretty... If you are still in business and you intend to do business tomorrow, Mm -hmm. 
then you should still be dedicated to fixing what needs to be repaired to continuous improvement, to continuing to be a little bit better today than you were yesterday and a little bit better tomorrow than you were today. Wow. If you can't make that commitment, then be good to everybody, stop wasting their time, and close your doors. Well, that's... uh... Is that overly that, capitalistic of me? <laughs> well, no, I think it's good advice uh, in the workplace and, and in general. If you're if the door is still open, you kind of owe it to everybody to continue to try. Right, and that also means if your doors are still open, there's still hope. There's still Absolutely. Hope. So, I mean, on the other side, I mean, I think of one of my personal experiences of working for a company that was uniquely... Uh, challenged by September 11th, mm-hmm. very old company, and we came perilously close to going out of business. Mm-hmm. But every day, and I do mean every day because we worked weekends, um, every day there we were still open, <laughs> we were still doing business, there was still hope we could still turn this around. And we did, and we did. And it was a company that, because of the attacks, lost their international headquarters. Mm-hmm. We lost well over 100 employees. They died mm-hmm. that day. We were devastated financially because our three main lines of business um, had basically collapsed. Mm-hmm. No one was doing business anymore. We had almost no revenue. But we never stopped believing we could turn it around, that we could save this company, and we did. That's that's remarkable, and I know, for me, I really appreciate how upbeat and optimistic Rin is, and, and I'm sure that all of our listeners are, too. And, you know, human involvement in anything makes for drama and <laughs> misunderstandings and hurt feelings. Um, and I remember what my classmates used to advise in the eighth grade. They used to tell me, act mature. So maybe... Uh, for those of us looking to put a bow on this, act mature, or if the door is still open, keep trying hard, keep trying to get better. What a a profound lesson. And that's going to have to do it for this week on the Guardian Podcast with Ren Melberg. And remember to check out her website, which is www.renmelberg.com to keep up with all the latest And please come back next week for another edition of the Guardian Podcast with Ren Milberg.